Pray with me if you would once more. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for just hearing a great song about your great grace and about your great sufficiency. And it's a song we can say amen to because it's, uh, it rings true in our own hearts as believers and, and, and we're just so thankful, so thankful to be able to respond in so many different ways. Help us to respond even now as we study your word together and understand our need for salvation even better so that Christ might be glorified in ways he's not currently being glorified so that we might be better equipped as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I was growing up, especially in my younger years, to me, the coolest TV show on was Happy Days. And I've seen every episode, I don't know how many times, and uh, some of you who were older than I am thought the same thing. Some of you who were younger than I am thought the same thing. Others of you less privileged people, uh, you'll have to like get it on Netflix or something. But it was all the rage, it's Happy Days, and... Interestingly enough, the the show was taking place back in the 50s, supposedly, and it was supposed to have, as the main character, Richie Cunningham, and everything was revolved around Richie. But if you were like me, you didn't see Richie Cunningham as the main character. Who did you see as the main character? It's the Fonz. It's Arthur Fonzarelli, right, where we get the thumbs up, we get, hey, you know, he was like the epitome of cool. The Fonz, Fonzie, you know, he rode a motorcycle. I mean, he's got to be cool. Never mind. <laughs> you know, the motorcycle, he's got the leather jacket, you know, and all the girls like Fonzie. He seemed to never have to pay for anything. I mean, he, he, was, he was the man. He was, he was the epitome of cool. Well, Fonzie's a great illustration. I've used it before. He's a great illustration of what we're talking about this morning, at least as a lead-in and what we've been talking about. On one particular episode, Fonzie did something wrong. And Fonzie needed to apologize. I can't remember if it was to Richie or to who it was. And, and he needed to uh, admit his guilt. You know, he did the wrong thing. You remember the episode? And so he went and he said, you know, I'm sorry or whatever. And then he said, I was... And then he tried again. I was... And it just kept going on. He couldn't say that he was wrong because he was just too prideful. He was just too cool to admit that he was wrong. It's a great illustration for us when we talk about sin and our wronging God. But in a sense, on the spiritual level, Fonzie was light years ahead of us. Fonzie had a problem saying what he knew was true. We're a bit behind in the spiritual realm, many of us, most people, because it's not that we're having a problem saying we're wrong. We're having a problem seeing ourselves as being wrong to begin with. We think we're right in the eyes of God, and we think as long as we keep doing right things, wink, wink, as long as we keep doing right things and pleasing God, everything's going to be okay. Well, if Romans has been telling us anything, Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, it's that we're not right. We're actually in a wrong relationship with God. It's gone wrong and it's our fault and there is going to be hell to pay. And God will be just, God will be fair, God in His righteousness will give us what we deserve and no one will be able to justly say, that's not fair. 
And so Romans 1, 2, and 3 uh, has been painting us in a corner, as I like to say, so that we will see that we need Christ. We need the cross. We need Jesus who came here to live a right life on behalf of sinners like us. He came here then to die a sinner's death and experience God's just condemnation for sinners like us. He, he rose again from the dead on our behalf as well. So three chapters of showing us that we're wrong in God's eyes, justly so, so that we'll see how right Christ is. Well, this morning we come to the end of chapter 3. At least we'll end at the end of chapter 3. And it's a doozy. (laughs) We are going to look at Romans 3, 9 to 20 this morning. And in Romans 3, 9 to 20, it's really going to stop all arguments. It's going to put us in our place ultimately. And in Romans 3, 9 to 20, we'll be able to notice, we'll be able to observe four unsettling certainties. There are four unsettling certainties about how wrong we are that prepare us to see how right Christ is and how great and gracious and kind and merciful God is in giving us Christ and His righteousness for our unrighteousness. Four unsettling certainties about our rebellion against God, about our wrongness that get us ready for the cross, get us ready for the gospel. Let me preview them for you now. You can shorthand this or however you would like, but let me preview these four now. Number one, the first unsettling certainty, all have been charged with rebellion. All have been charged with rebellion. That's chapter 3, verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. All have been charged with rebellion. A second unsettling certainty that we will see in Romans 3. All have Holy Scripture testifying against them. All have Holy Scripture testifying against them. That's in verses 10 to 18, the largest section. All have Holy Scripture testifying against them. Third, unsettling certainty, getting us ready for the cross. Number three, none have a defense. None have a defense, verse 19. And number four, none can escape. None can escape, chapter 3, verse 20. And on purpose, I wrote that as all have been charged, all have Holy Scripture against them, None have a defense. None can escape because that's what this passage is all about. It's the climactic point where we've heard about sin in chapter 1, we've heard about sin in chapter 2, we've heard about sin in chapter 3, and now just in case there's any doubt, just to deal with all the objections, it's the all and the all and the none and the none. There is no escaping this. All are guilty. All are under condemnation. And it's very dismal. It is bad news. It's universal bad news. But again, as we read in our scripture reading this morning, it gets us ready for the best word in the whole Bible in one sense. But, (laughs) but now, Christ. And so we're getting ready 
so that we might appreciate Christ, so that we might worship Him. If you're a Christian, so that you'll see Christ as even grander than you have before. If you're not a Christian, you'll see Christ in a way that makes sense. Because quite frankly, it doesn't even make sense for Jesus to come here. It doesn't make sense for Jesus to die a sinner's death. It doesn't make sense for Jesus to do these things. If we are not under the condemnation of God, if we are generally good people, God should accept us without Jesus. So I hope it helps you even if you're not a Christian to understand the the, the logic and the thinking behind biblical Christianity. The first unsettling certainty about about our human condition, number one, all have been charged with rebellion against God. Well, this has already come up. This has already been reiterated. And Paul is anticipating that the religious people, like they always do, are going to have a problem with it. Sin, 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 sin. Even religious people have offended God. Even they have violated God's just standard. And so, he anticipates the objection in verse 9 and says, What then? Are we, I take it as Jews, better than they, Gentiles? What then? Are, are, Are we exempt from God's just standards? Oh sure, we're privileged. We learned out about that in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 and following, that we've received the law from God. We are, we've received the covenants. We have the sign of the covenant. And so then that, that begs the question, and it's what the Jews want to keep bringing up again. It's what religious people want to keep bringing up. You know, doesn't our religion and our identification with a particular religion, in this case Judaism, in your case it might be loosely Christendom, doesn't it exempt us? Haven't we received enough privileges from God that we're exempt from, from just condemnation? And he says in verse 9, not at all. You're privileged, yes, but th- this doesn't cause you to escape the just penalty for your sin. Not at all. For, he gives explanation, we have already charged. Notice the, the court of law verbiage on purpose. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And I think he's referring back to chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 8. You know, we've, we've already established this in this court, that all, chapter 1, uh, verse 18 and following, you've got the Gentiles, you've got the, the Greeks, the pagans, and then in chapter 2, you've got the moral do-gooders, they've sinned too, they've offended God and are worthy of His just condemnation, and then we move on, and we see that religious people too have a sin problem, because they're not perfect either, so they're under the just condemnation of God, and so he says, we've already charged, you've already seen our argument, why are you objecting? Both... Jews and Greeks, so that includes everyone, are all under sin. The charge is rebellion against God. The verdict is guilty. And the result is what? It's it's universal condemnation. We're going to see this over and over again, this universal idea. The Bible certainly teaches universalism. but not the way universalists want it to. It doesn't teach universal salvation, but it certainly teaches universalism. It teaches universal condemnation. Everybody. That's why he says here, both, all. And we're going to see it over and over again. And it's just condemnation for universal rebellion. And given the fact that God is the one who is residing in His court of law, given the fact that all the evidence is in, He knows everything, No amount of fancy lawyering or arguing is going to get us out of it. The charge is there. 
both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. No exceptions, no exclusions, no exemptions. Universalism. Now, let me play the heckler. You might have a little heckler going on in your heart. I'm thankful it's not culturally appropriate, so just keep it to yourself. <laughs> but there's something in us that wants to respond sometimes. You know, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Paul. I don't know about that. All are under condemnation, universal condemnation. So from one corner of the room, it would be, oh, I don't know. Maybe moving it into our day, somebody, a heckler might say, hey, don't you ever listen to Christian radio? You know, if you just listen to the message, you wouldn't hear that Christianity is all about the just condemnation upon all peoples. What does that have to do with the gospel? Come on, Paul, get with it. Paul, haven't you read the book, Believe in the God Who Believes in You? Come on, you can buy it for a penny on Amazon. Heckler might say that. Or how about over here? Paul, it's a free country. Everyone has a right to their own opinion. But how dare you impose your beliefs upon me? Or maybe a heckler would say, Paul, keep that strange teaching to yourself. And not only that, keep that strange teaching to yourself because you're acting as if it were biblical or something. Where do you get off promoting your doctrine, making it sound like it's somehow from the Bible or something with such dogmatism? Well, that brings us to the second unsettling certainty, which is all have Holy Scripture testifying against them. If there were such a heckler, it's pretty ironic because he's actually going to make it crystal clear that this is not based upon sociological research. Uh, This is not based upon an opinion poll. This is not based upon psychoanalysis. This conclusion is the conclusion because it is the biblical conclusion that everyone is a sinner who is hostile to God and there's nothing they can do to earn favor with God and he is just in condemning everybody. It is biblical. Clear, uncontested text after text. And by the way, what he's going to do in this section, verses 10 to 18, is he just bombards us. He bombards the objectioners. He bombards our will. It is this bombastic text after text after text after text, all taken from the Old Testament, all taken from Holy Scripture to make this point clear that this isn't Paul's doctrine. This, is, this isn't Paul's doctrine at all. Look with me, if you would, at verse 10 where it says, As it is written ultimate trump card as it is written this is not because you know the musings of a grumpy old apostle uh, these are this is not you know reformation theology per se that's not where this came from this is not you know oh there you go with that you know same stuff from calvin and luther and and all of those guys that's where this came from i've heard that before that's that reformed theology no As it is written, not in the Institutes. (laughs) He's going to quote Scripture after Scripture after Scripture about universal depravity. Look what it says in verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. Here's what I wrote in my notes. Repeat, 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 dot, dot, dot. (laughs) He's quoting Psalm 14. 
And if there's a scripture memory verse for you to memorize, if you memorize any scripture to help you understand the good news, preparing your heart to understand the good news, it's this. There it is. There is none righteous, not even one. I'm going to keep saying it, so I hope it haunts you if need be. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none righteous, not even one. I'll say it quietly. There's none righteous, not even one. I'll say it loudly. There's none righteous, not even one. Scripture says, God says, here we are hoping that somehow our our righteousness, our our religion, our do-gooderism is going to get us to God. It's our own righteousness. And what does God do? God takes the hammer, if you will, and smashes any such idea. By His grace, He does that, by the way. There is none righteous, not even one. That didn't come from the 16th century. He's quoting Scripture. That's offensive. (laughs) That's offensive to Fonzie Pride. That's offensive to to, to the -the run-of-the-mill average Joe on the street. That's offensive to religious people for sure. Dare I say, that's offensive to your garden-variety evangelical. I mean, this is like, what? Where, Where did that come from? based upon the conversations I have with people. And yet, it's the very reason that Romans is giving us for Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness doesn't make any sense if we are not void of righteousness ourselves. If I have righteousness and the things I do somehow please God, then I don't need Christ. His point is clear. His point is powerful. His point is gracious. You have no righteousness. Christ has it all. You need Him. Stop listening to the people who tell you otherwise is what He would want them to know. If we don't understand this, we won't make sense of Christ. We'll we'll, we'll have a Jesus. We'll talk about Him. And He'll be some sort of idol. We'll be back to Romans 1. To me, Jesus is... He doesn't want us to do that. So even though this is reprehensible to the unconverted heart, this is reprehensible to the person who is not being drawn by the Spirit of God, to those of us who believe in Christ, we say, yeah! And it causes me to see Christ as all the more glorious. Or the one that God is drawing, it's like, oh yeah, this has all been zero. This has all been a waste of my time. I've been lied to. I've been misled. And the verse... Ten isn't enough. And by the way, I should give you one technical note. It seems, and scholars would tell us, grammarians would tell us, that verse 10 is is the opening summary statement of everything. And then verse 18 is the recap. So it's, it's encapsulated. And then everything in between is just detail and elaboration. So he comes out right away. None righteous, no, not one. That's really what he's getting at. And then he'll reiterate, in other words, in verse 18. But just in case it's not enough, he just goes off. So I will try my best to do the same. Verse 11. uh, There is none who understands. Spiritual context, so it's understands the truth of God, understands that it's all about the glory of God, whatever it might be. They They don't have spiritual comprehension apart from the intervening grace of God. There is none who seeks for God. So again, universal. None who seeks for God. And you say, what? 
He must have forgotten that there are a lot of religions in the world. Maybe, maybe he forgot there are a lot of people who are into spirituality. There are a lot of seekers out there. I just remind you that in Romans, he's just got done talking to and is still talking to religious people. People associated with the right religion with Judaism. And what does he say? No one seeks God. As if to put his finger in their chest and say, especially you, pal. No wonder they killed him. (laughs) But it's no wonder they killed Jesus. Because when he came, what did he say? It's not those who are healthy who need a physician. I came for those who are spiritually sick. And so, no one seeks for God. I'm going to use self-control and not go off on the ridiculous stupidity of having a seeker service. See, I'm not going to talk about that. You know what we're going to do? And maybe next time what we'll do is we'll talk about this historically, where it fits into historical theology. We'll talk about how it impacts our philosophy of ministry and how we, quote-unquote, do church. Uh, We'll talk about some of those kinds of things, maybe some other objections. We'll do that, but not today. I just want to stick to the text, so to speak. But please let me just insert a footnote and say, the way we do ministry and the way we do practical things and the way we do evangelism reveals what we believe about human beings and therefore reveals what we believe about Jesus. Our methodology betrays our theology. And what we want to do is have theology that is most exalting to Christ anthropology that is most exalting to Christ, which would be what he's saying in his word, and then have that theology, if you will, impact our methodology and how we do ministry. This is very important because we're talking about the glory of Christ. That's ultimately what's at stake here. When it says there is none who seeks for God, I take it that's what it's all about. And it's even talking about religious people. Shocking, perhaps, but true. God says no one This is apart from divine intervention, apart from the gospel. No one seeks God. There's no seeking. Well, he strings another text in there, in case you're not encouraged yet. Verse 12. All have turned aside. No, here's the path to God. Here's the right way based upon my revelation of myself, whether it's in Romans 1 or Romans 2 or Romans 3. Here's the right way. And all, universalism, have turned aside. Verse 12. Insult to injury. Together. Oh, so there's, there's more universality. Together. Perhaps we'd even say there's unity. <laughs> Together they have become useless. I find that particularly shocking. You know, because, you know, apart from the grace of God and understanding the Bible, you'd think, you know what? What I think is that, that God must look down and see all this religion and all this stuff going on, and He probably sees this as very useful. <laughs> He's... He's saying, you know what? This is all useless. It's all perverted. It's all twisted. Somehow or another, you think somehow that you can get away from my righteous judgment. This doesn't make any sense. The wages of sin is not do-gooderism. The wages of sin is not religion or going to church. The wages of sin is death. And you're in a whole lot of trouble. And so all of your religious smells and bells and stuff and whatever else, it's useless. I mean, this is such an offensive attack to the person who doesn't know Christ. But it's, again, designed to till the ground, if you will, of our hearts and and shatter the icons of our hearts 
to get rid of the, to me, God is kind of stuff in our hearts so that we get it, and that's that we are destitute and desperate. God, I can't do it! It's exactly right. Christ did everything. And He's to be glorified, and He's to be worshipped. And then, if that's not enough, look at verse 12. How about verse 12 at the end? There is none universal who does good. There is not even one. Can you believe it? That'll fill a stadium. (laughs) I'm not sure what kind of sound bites we could create if that was going to be the theme of the conference. Which would be getting ready people ready for the gospel. I mean, this one rates right up there as a close second. There's none righteous, no, not one. You know, just almost as good as that one as far as a shock value text. Uh, no one does good. Uh, no, not one. And he's quoting Bible verses. I mean, I'll be the first one to say, hopefully with a biblically informed mind, you know, heaven is for good people. Right? You know who's going to go to heaven? Good people. (laughs) No one does good. No, not one. You know, apart from divine intervention and God's sovereign grace, guess who would be in heaven? (laughs) Uh, Jesus. (laughs) Right? The reason He had to come is no one does good. No, not one. Nobody's going to be in heaven. We've all offended God. No righteousness. No, no goodness. This is crazy. If it's not true, if we were good, if we did good, then Jesus wouldn't have needed to inconvenience himself, if I can say it in that trivial way. If we're good and do good things, Jesus didn't need to come here. Jesus didn't need to die. But he did because we're not good. This doesn't mean there isn't relative goodness. This doesn't mean we all act as badly as we could all of the time. But when it comes to earning favor with God, what Francis Schaeffer may have called good goodness, true, genuine, with all the right motives, everything pure, there's no such thing. Because we've all been tainted by sin. No one does good. There's not even one. And guess what happens when we lose sight of that? If you lose sight of that, you will, by necessity, pervert that, the cross. If you lose sight of the fact that no one does good, no, not one, I guarantee you it has to be your gospel, your take on the cross will be perverted. Your gospel will be, to borrow from Galatians 1, another gospel. If you're not saying, yeah, I agree with God, no one does good, no, not one, it's in a gospel context here, then no matter what you believe about the cross, somehow it's not going to be the truth about the cross. Somehow it's going to be, He saw how good we are, so He came here for us. He saw how uh, how positive we were. This is a huge issue, because remember Galatians 1 says if we bring another gospel, Galatians 1, 8, and 9, then you're under the curse of God yourself. This is a huge issue. Why do friends, why do Christian friends tell me to buy books where I read, and I quote, 
there was something inside me that caused Jesus to love me. Like, hello? There was something inside of me that caused Jesus to love me? Some kind of good inside of me that caused Jesus to, to love me? When I read that, I'm not, I don't feel blue like jazz. I feel blue in the face like I want to say, why did you make me buy that book? You say, just get over it, you know? It's not a big deal. It's the gospel. We're, it's a huge deal. Why does somebody get a free pass and saying, you know what the gospel is? Jesus saw something good in me. Hello, the book Romans is on the gospel and what is it telling us? What is it just driving home? No one does good. No, not one. You know what Jesus saw in me? Keep reading. Verse 13, Pat's throat is an open grave. (laughs) Their throat is an open grave. Kind of graphic, don't you think? There's a graveyard not too far from here. I bet they've got some fresh bodies in the ground. Maybe some not so fresh bodies in the ground. Let's do a field trip. You know what God saw in me when He chose to have His Son come here and die for me? He saw that Pat's throat is an open grave. It is disgusting, defiled, and unclean. That's what He saw. That's why He needed to send His Son. Not as a reward for my goodness. Keep reading. What else did He see? Uh, With Pat's tongue, He keeps deceiving. (laughs) Well, you see, it's with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. It's venomous. Uh, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And if that's not enough, you might want to write in your margin what Jesus says about this very thing. What comes out of our mouth betrays our heart. <laughs> Matthew twelve thirty four. the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It, it, it reveals who we really are. Matthew fifteen eighteen. but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. That's what Jesus saw. That's what God saw. That's what the triune God saw. And what does He do? It's Romans 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. That's Romans 5.8. Well, if that's not enough, if you're not encouraged yet by how great Christ is, verse 15, their feet, so now He's using different Imagery, talking about our actions, not just our speech, which betrays our heart. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. Verse 17, and the path of peace they have not known. <laughs> oh, man. You think they'd let me preach this sermon at Robert Schuller's church? No, I don't think so. You know what? There it is. It's in the text. It's in the text relating to the gospel. So if we're going to get the gospel right and the cross, we've got to get this right. And yeah, I get exercised about it. I get fired up about it. Why? Because in 1 Corinthians 15, you know what's the most important thing in the whole world? That which is of first importance, it's the gospel. Romans is about the gospel. And he knows full well, God does, as he uses his instrument, Paul, to write this letter about the gospel. He knows full well that we're going to come to some pretty whacked out conclusions about the cross if we don't first understand the most basic fundamental thing about humanity, and that's depravity. No one does good. No, not one. Now, you don't need to understand what I'm about ready to say and point out to you to understand the passage 
but I want to mention it to you because I think it's rather interesting. If you were to take the time to look up those texts that we just looked at, you can look in your margin, you see they're taken from the Old Testament, so he's relying upon God's holy scripture for his uh, authority and basis for condemnation. But if you were to start looking them up and start categorizing them, Psalm 14, other, other texts as well, listen to the categorization. 10 to 12, verses 10 to 12 are Old Testament quotations talking about human beings in general, in context it seems. 13 to 14, the psalmist is talking about his enemies in the original context. But then notice this one. In verses 15 to 17, it's quoting Old Testament texts referring to, get this, Israel's sinfulness. I think that's significant because, again, our tendency is to say, yeah, all that no one does good, no, not one. That's those bad people. But you know what? We've got Bibles. We've got Yahweh. We've got revelation from Him. And so somehow that's, a, that's like a get-out-of-jail-free get free card. As long as we've got this and we've got blessing and association, you know what? God's not going to hold us accountable for our sin. It's interesting, as he's giving this uh, bombardment of text showing that all are under just condemnation, he even uses texts that are talking about Israel's sinfulness, even religious people. No one gets out. It is universal. And then he wraps it up, giving a synonym, I think, for verse 10, or a synonymous statement in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's the root. That's the problem. Ultimately, that's the issue. Sure, we talk about Yahweh. We talk about God. We talk about Bible. We talk about Christianity. We talk about our ancestry and Moses. And we talk about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we talk about all these privileges that we have. But at the end of the day, even though we might say all those things and say all the right verbiage and do all these sort of uh, things, at the end of the day, what does he say? The problem is... There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what the issue is. We, we don't take God at His word. We, we don't take Him seriously. In the end, we use Him, we hijack His name to gain benefit, but we, we don't take Him seriously because if we did, we would be agreeing with Him, saying, that's right, we're condemned. You're, you're right. Religion won't do it. You could cross-reference at another time to Galatians 3.22. Listen to Galatians 3.22. The Scripture has shut up every one under sin. Complimentary statement. You've got the everyone for the universal aspect, and you know what? The Scripture, you know what it does? It gives a gag order. Everyone's under sin. We're desperate. We need Christ. We need the Gospel. We need good news. And as I've said before, what makes the good news so good is reality about the bad news. Well, let's move on now to a third. And a third and fourth we'll do quickly. Third, unsettling certainty about human rebellion against God, which gets us ready for the cross. Number three, none have a defense. Paul anticipates an objection, especially religious people. Hey, wait a minute, pal. Let me start telling you about all the stuff I've done. Let me tell you about, let me remind you of our heritage. None have a defense. Look at verse 19. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, I think referring generally to the law, back to the text he just referenced. Now whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And, you know, if we could just stop there for a second. It would be so far so good to the Jewish mind. I think Paul is even playing into how they would be thinking. You know what? You received the law. You're the ones that received the Old Testament. And it's addressing you. It's talking to you. And they might even wanting to be, they might even be wanting to say, that's right. Again, blind to what he's been saying earlier, but you know what? We've got the law. It's going to protect us. It's the king's ex. But much to their disdain comes the purpose statement for such a law. Look at verse 19, where it goes on to say, so that every, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Every mouth, including the religious mouth, so that all the world, everyone, would be accountable to God, using that legal uh, law court imagery once again. Standing before God, the sovereign judge, who's been offended, Standing before him, you've got a world of sinners accountable, prepared to be justly judged because they're sinners. Their mouths are closed. You know what's profound about verse 19 in that purpose statement? Every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. You know, it's at that time. There's a day coming when there will no longer be any more, in effect, calling God a liar by saying, I'm a good person! I think that's what Paul's getting at. There is a day coming when every mouth will be silenced. and There will be a universal shutting up of people, in effect, calling God a liar by saying, I'm good, dot, 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 I don't care what you say. You say I'm a sinner. I know I'm not. I'm righteous. It's a vivid, vivid, vivid scene. But it's how it ends. It's relentless what he's doing here. I think in a good way. If you've been following the argument, you know, in chapter 1, verse 20, so that they are without excuse, the pagans. Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you have no excuse, you moral do-gooder. And now chapter 3, verse 19, at the end, all the world may become accountable to God. It's another way of saying no one will have an excuse because everyone's a sinner. And God has not changed in His righteousness or His justice. There will be no arguing against that reality. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I, I am not encouraged. I just think, man, this is, this, this is bad. Not that God is bad. We're bad. This business of what we keep giving God, it's going to stop one day. This is, this is messed up. It makes you feel desperate. 
This is a bad ending. Well, it gets a little bit worse. Number four, the fourth unsettling certainty about human rebellion against God that gets us ready for the cross, none can escape. Verse 20 says, because, here's how that can happen. Here's how that can be surely a reality. Because by the works of the law, no flesh, more universalism, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. To conclude that you can somehow escape the righteous judgment of God by doing right, by keeping the law, by, by doing good works, to, to come to that conclusion is, is, is nonsense because, as it says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Even though countless millions upon millions upon millions of people think somehow that by, by doing righteous deeds, by, by doing these works, somehow God is going to accept them, God is going to accept them, God is going to accept them. They know that they know that they know that they know that they don't perfectly keep this God's laws. That regardless of how externally they might be able to have it together, they don't have it together and they fail. And God's law is designed to show that. God has graciously given it to us. No one can escape this. Good works aren't going to get us out because the good works aren't even good. We just saw that. If you're relying upon your whatever it is, you fill in the blank to somehow get you to God, ultimately in the end what you should know is you can't do that thing you're relying upon good enough. And if it's been done to you by someone else, that person's hands are dirty with sin too. You've got a huge problem. And now we are desperate because we have the human dilemma. We are desperate. Can't try to do good and my good will outweigh my bad. The problem is that's not the standard. And my standard is not other people. That'd be easy. i just find the bad people. Ha, ha, ha. The standard is God's perfect righteousness and He's the sovereign King and He says, do what I say and I don't. So I'll just, I'll just come to church. I'll be a preacher. It's not going to do it either. God's righteousness has been violated. The wages of sin is death. I'm busted and so are you. There's nothing you can do. And then, God's gracious, loving, and amazing. And by the way, so far, you, you, there, you can't even understand God's love and how great it is until you get this. But now you can, because now, as we did in Scripture reading, look at chapter 3, verse 21. But now! Best word in the whole Bible, but, right? But now! Oh, yeah! We're desperate on our faces. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God, which is not being compromised, he's not flexing on that, has been manifested, it's made made clear, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, so it's not anti-law, it's not anti-Old Testament, it's actually part of the fulfillment and unpacking of it. Even, verse 22, especially, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. 
Then he talks about propitiation in, in, in verse 25 and, and in verse 26 so that he would be the just and the justifier. And what, what are we doing? We all become Baptists pretty fast. Amen! Yeah! I'm having a charismatic experience! This is amazing! This is absolutely amazing. You know, Molly and I have been doing a Bible study with some people and talking to them, and, and I'll be a little bit crass because I'm quoting someone else. But the man said, let me get this straight. We're studying Romans. Let me just get this straight. We suck and Jesus is great. I said, amen. I said, you've got it exactly right. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. We not only do wrong, we are wrong in everything that we do and we're offensive to God. In His version, we suck. Jesus is right in His perfect righteousness that He gives to us. That's what we just read about in chapter 3, verses 21 and following, through faith. We depend upon His righteousness, not our own, because we have none. That's the gospel. This is just basic Christianity. This is what Christians have been talking about for years. It's become so profound and perhaps controversial because we've just forgotten about it. Isn't Christ great? He is. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for... Jesus Christ, what else do we say? Thank you for Christ, our Savior, our King, our everything. Christ, our righteousness. In no way have you compromised your justice. You're not winking at sin. You're not compromising your own character. It's all intact. And you displayed your perfect righteousness even as you judged your Son on our behalf so that we might not face your judgment that He earned our righteousness for us, that it belongs to Him and yet He credits it to us. We rejoice and we give You thanks. God, help us to be faithful and clear, not only believing this with our own hearts by the power of Your Holy Spirit, but even as we communicate it to others. God, set our hearts on fire for the Gospel. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.